Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us, we are midway, more than midway through our countdown of the top 15 episodes of Game of Thrones on the way to the final season, season eight. Today we are talking about season four, episode eight, The Mountain and the Viper, written by Weiss and Benioff and directed by Alex Graves. Um, this is a gimme, right, Richard? Like people had to know this was coming, right? It, it's, I think, one of the most famous scenes of the show. I mean, that's the final scene anyway. Um, maybe this gets named as like one of the, the deaths of the show. Anyway, um, but the more happens in this episode than just that final duel, even though that's the one that people talk about. Um, if you've missed our, our podcast series up until now, 
we've been talking, we talk about the show, we talk about the episode, we give a little, give out little awards, and we talk about why this episode is so important, why it deserves to be in the top 15. Um, and then we have an, an interview with someone who worked on the episode or on the show in general. This week, I'm really excited. We've got, uh, Deborah Riley, who is the art and production design, um, guru on Game of Thrones. And she has, she's been on since season four and is responsible for just like so many staggeringly beautiful aspects of the show. So we're really excited to talk to her. But before we get to that, um, this is where I get to try to do my 15 word recap for the show, which goes like this. Ramsey gets a new name. Sansa does her hair. The Viper loses his head. So <laughs> that's uh, pretty succinct. <laughs> there it is. That's good. Um, and then we're going to give out our awards for the episode. Obvious MVP of the episode. It's the same as our, our last discussion, which I think is Oberyn Martell. So I don't know who else to pick, but do you have a different answer, Richard? I mean, I would almost say the mountain because he beats Oberyn. Oh, I see how it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, so either the mountain or the viper, you take your pick. And then sneaky MVP. Um, I'm going to give it to Indira Varma, who plays Laria Sand, because she lets out that scream that is like almost as famous as the head pop itself. So, um, yeah, the great Indira Varma. What do you think? I'm going to give it to the actress Paola Dionisotti, who plays uh, Anya Wainwood in the scene where Littlefinger is trying to explain, like, oh, no, no, she oh. she fell out of the moon door or jumped out or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's, she's like the one old lady kind of doing the interrogating with the two other guys, and I think she's great in that one scene. She also has great hair. She's got this, like, mm-hmm. white curls sort of perched on top of her head. Great, great stuff. Um all right. Uh, I'm going to, my quote, we're going to pick our favorite quote and try to dramatically perform it from the episode. Um, my quote comes from that interrogation scene, um, but it does not belong to her. It belongs to Jan Royce. And he goes, always been a grubby job. Why not let a grubby man do it? So um, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, they really don't like Littlefinger is, is what, no, we, exactly. get, what we get from that yeah. scene. Uh, what's yeah. your uh, quote dramatically performed, Richard? <clears throat> All right, here we go. Today is not the day I die. Oh. Uh, that's Oberyn. And of course, he's wrong about five minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought that was Tywin Lannister. That was your Oberyn impression. No, okay. <laughs> my name is Putin Boot. <laughs> my name is Anigo Montoya. You kill my sister. Um, yeah, Oberyn. Uh, wrong about a lot of things in this episode. Okay, best dressed for, once again, this is a gimme for me. Oh, actually, no, it's a tie. Mm. All right, um, I'm going to give it to... I'm, no, I'm changing it last second because it just occurred to me. Obviously, it's Sansa in her like dark Sansa yeah. look with the feathers and the necklace coming down the stairs, right? The Sansa glow up, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, my my the one I had before I realized that I was forgetting Sansa was once again in Dear Varma because she's wearing this like tangerine sort of like cape thing with these like leather pointed shoulders it's it's a crazy amazing getup. but um and like a bikini top it's like a whole it's a whole look to watch her paramore die but um sansa with the glow up obviously um and then let's do our ship of the episode this is where we talk about like uh either the two people or maybe like two inanimate objects. I don't know. Our, our, our definition is really loose, but two things that we would like to see get together in this episode, Richard, I'm going to let you go first. I mean, this is like pretty basic of me, but Miss Andy and Grey Worm. Ooh, yeah. Um, because I, because I really like that the, I don't think their scenes are always that well written, but like, I like that the show 
saw these kind of two consistent characters in the books and were like, well, what are they thinking? What's their deal? You know? Right. Um, I think that's an interesting way where the show actually expands on the books, where I feel like a lot of the narrative of talking about the show is like what they don't include from the books or get right from the books. And here's something that they invent totally that um, I think works really nicely. Thanks largely to Jacob Anderson, who plays Grey Worm, and Natalie Emanuel, who plays Miss Andy. Yeah, uh, one thing we should say is that um, in the books, Miss Andy is a child. So, you know, like the fact that they aged her up, um, you know, opens the door for this this narrative here. And I do, one, t- one aspect of that that I do like in this episode is, you know, they have the bathing scene, which is like kind of famous. And then like Miss Andy and Danny are talking about it in the pillars and stone sort of question, which is kind of famous. But I really like the throne room scene where they're talking and um he calls her, I think he calls her precious, right? And she's like, I didn't teach you that word. And he's like, Jorah taught me that word. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, Jorah, Jorah just does good work going around teaching people things to say uh, throughout the series. So uh, shout out to Jorah, who has a rough episode uh, this week. Anyway, um, my ship is cousin Orson Lannister and those Beatles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> may he forever find the Beatles that he's looking for. So um, there you go. Um, all right. So we are going to talk about what else happened in this episode and why it's so important. A couple of plot lines that we haven't mentioned is like Arya and the Hound come to the Eerie and have their near miss. There's all this stuff with Ramsey and Theon and Roose Bolton and Ramsey gets sort of, um, Debastardized, he gets named Ramsey Bolton. Uh, officially, we've got that Jamie and Tyrion scene that happens before um, the duel, which I really, really like. This sort of quiet prison scene. There's a lot of good prison scenes, and then there's this whole sacking of Molestown by the Wildlings. And I kind of want to start there because, um, as important as the duel is at the end of this episode. This moment at the beginning where, you know, we spend some time in this Molestown brothel, so we don't feel like too bad that these people die because they're pretty awful and they're mean to Gilly, who we like. So, you know, that it's okay that they get died. But it's still complicated to watch Egret and Torment, two characters that we like. And Torment, who's like a hero on the show now, just slaughter this whole town of people who all can't be as mean as that one prostitute. So, um, yeah, like, what do you think of this of this uh, situation here? Am I mistaken that that opening shot of them at the table and she's burping out the song and they're guessing it? And is it one kind of long tracking shot yeah. that goes kind of around the table and then follows and finds Gilly? I, I think it's a really interesting opening, like just technically speaking. Yeah. Um, I think that actress who plays the mean <laughs> prostitute is great. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think you forget that like things on this show shift sort of gradually enough that you don't notice it but it's like yeah like in this at this point like the wildlings are like brutal including agree you know and so we're kind of leading up to her impending doom um and while it was sad certainly or it's going to be sad it's also like yeah like she's pretty ruthless even though she sees gillian like you know says be quiet or you know does shh and <laughs> and and spares her and the baby right um but you know it, it's a it's a good reminder that that like e- even these sort of people fighting for their own, you know, freedom are, are, are pretty, pretty, uh, brutal. Yeah. I, I, um, it, it's funny because the show creators are so proud of, um, the episode in season seven, uh, the spoils of war where you see Jamie and Braun against Daenerys. Um, but I think, um, and because they said like, Oh, this is the first time you don't know who to root for on like which side, but like, I, I mean, 
I don't know. I'm not, not necessarily that I'm like rooting for Ygritte and Tormund, but it, especially since all we go through with Tormund later on in the season or the series, it's hard not to root for him. And so you have to try to remember, okay, like these people have been, the wildlings have been like very poorly treated by the people south of the wall. And so, you know, they're heroes in their own mind. They're justified in their fight here. Um, yeah. And then it's complicated yeah. because you've got Gilly and Egret. And like, yeah, yeah, Egret like conceals Gilly, but like they're on definitely opposite sides of this. Well, Gilly's a wild link too, but like they're kind of on opposite sides of this fight. So it's, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And then you've got this, this, this conversation with like John and Sam and, and the boys at the wall, um, which is a lead up because in the next episode is the big battle at the wall, um, between John and his men and, um, the wildling. So we need, we need to keep like feeling for these boys. And so you hear Ed talk about like, if I die, please burn me. I don't want to come back. Like, um, uh-huh. all this stuff is laying track for what's to come for them. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that there is that nice moment when I forget which, which, um, night's watchman it is. It's like, she survived Craster. She survived this. She, she survived a white Walker, but you know, like may, maybe she's okay. Like kind of a- acknowledging that Gilly, who is, I think oftentimes framed as a sort of helpless character actually like has some survival instinct in her. Um, maybe the same way kind of Sansa does it just, you know, sort of from very different socioeconomic backgrounds. Right. Uh, yeah, that was Ed. Who's my fave. Um, Ed, right. yeah. yeah. So, um, and yeah, and then speaking of Sansa, something that I've really, um, had to grapple with in this rewatch is how much I think I underestimated Sophie Turner, especially in these early seasons. Um, I think she's incredible in this episode. And I'm not really talking about the walk down the stairs shot, even though that's her most, one of her most famous shots in the entire series, but the trial scene. And then especially that scene afterwards where little finger comes and she goes, um, I know what you want or, you know, and he's like, do you? And then she just looks at him like, this is great work from her. I think so. Oh, totally. I mean, it, it really shows, you know, uh, command of the material, you know, I mean, cause these, these people were young when they started and, and, you know, she's really kind of coming into her own as a performer. And yeah, the scene at the trial where it, it is just so masterfully done. I think this episode's also like a great marker of Maisie Williams's performance, mm-hmm. um, as Aria. Like she, like the scene where she both, the, the one where she's kind of petulantly lamenting, um, not being able to kill Joffrey herself and how that makes her sad, um, that she can't kill people she wants to kill. Um, but also when she arrives finally at the Vale and she finds out her aunt's dead and she just laughs because it's like so absurd. She keeps showing up and like her family members have already been killed and it's like too late. And I think that like watching both Maisie Williams and Sophie Turner kind of evolve in just one episode in terms of their performances is, is pretty exciting. Yeah. It's funny for me to look back and, and at some of the things that bothered me at the time, especially as like a, um, stuck up book reader. Um, like the episode before this one is called Mockingbird. And when Baelish throws Lysa Aaron out the moon door and in the books, he says, um, I only want ever loved one woman, only cat. It's like kind of a famous line of his from the books, only cat. Um, and in the show, he says only your sister, which really bothered me. Cause I was just like, do you think, the audience won't get what he means when he says only cat. You think they'll be confused and think he's talking about Sir Pounce or something like that. But, um, <laughs> but looking back now, I'm like, why did you get annoyed about that? That was such a small thing. And then similarly in this episode, um, I remember being so annoyed because like Arya and the Hound get to the airy. They say Lysa's dead and Arya doesn't go like, 
cool who's in charge. Like I'm still related. They just walk away and that's it. You know what I mean? And I'm mm-hmm, just sort of mm-hmm. like, this is a show invented thing. It's not in the books. And they just wanted another one of those near misses. And like her reaction's so great. That dark laughter. It's really great. And the darkness and the growing darkness in both the Stark sisters in this episode is really great. Like that's all great, but it's just still bother me. Cause I'm like, wouldn't they then say, cool who's in charge you know what i mean like and at that point they knew who sansa was so i it's just uh you know these are things that like don't bother me so much years later but i remember a time being really spun up about um but yeah this is the beginning of sansa's like calculating really calculating side we saw a little bit of it in king's landing and the whole arc for sansa is about sort of what she learned from cersei and what she learned from Littlefinger, and how that made her who she is and how that made her the political player that she is um, yeah i mean she's finally deciding to play the titular game of thrones right. you know she's been a passive participant um almost up to this point i mean obviously doing little things here and there um but you know she reminds me of i don't know if you're a survivor watcher but like th- those certain players who like play a very quiet passive game and then kind of win like Tina Weston like early early on in the show and it's like people are like well no that they didn't they didn't you know actually participate play they just kind of sat there and it's like that is a strategy yeah like that is absolutely part a, a way to play the game and i think that like we're seeing this sort of evolution of Sansa's game uh and maybe realizing that she's been conscious of her role um a lot earlier than we thought yeah i I've, I've only ever watched one season of survivor but it was like, I think it was season two, maybe. Um, and the person that I remember watching, like, with most admiration was Elizabeth Hasselbeck, um, who, who became Elizabeth Hasselbeck. Um, because she, she played the quiet, nice girl game and she got really mm-hmm. close to the end. And like the fact that she is one of the most famous, um, you know, she was then on The View and stuff like that. The fact that she is now one of the most famous, like, uh, Survivor alums, I'm like, yeah, no shit. Like, she knows how to play a game, you know, in mm-hmm. a certain way. Exactly. Exactly what you say. Or you can, um, reference, um, Foxface in The Hunger Games, who is kind of, kind of a virtual character, but like, she's someone who just kind of like hid out in the woods and like snuck around and like just waited for everyone else to kill each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I, I respect that kind of game. And, and that's why I think why I've always, you know, held Sansa to be one of my favorite characters on the show because like, she's not just sort of subject to the whims of people. She's actually, um, she's, she, she's, she's very kind of surgical when, with when she kind of makes a move. Um, and this is an episode where she makes a big one, um, you know, sort of aligning herself or protecting someone she actually kind of hates. Right. When, and the, her explanation of it is so good when she's like, uh, you know, if they killed you, then what would they do to me? Like, you know, right. would that leave me? This is nothing to do with like charity. This is all survival. It's great. Um, okay. And then we have like this Moat Kalen thing, like the Greyjoys and the Boltons take Moat Kalen and using Theon, Theon having to pretend to be old Theon while still being traumatized and stuff like that. Uh, it's interesting because it's the kind of thing that the show absolutely does not have time for anymore. This is like a book plot that I think the show would be like, why are our viewers going to want to care about them taking Moat Kalen when they don't know the geography the way the book readers do, you know, and what right. matters there. But as a character moment, I really appreciate that there's time for it. Um, the Theon stuff I think is good. You know, you and I both said we're not like super high on Ramsey, but I think what Alfie Allen does with it is really good. And then subsequently the like conversation between Roose and Ramsey um, on the hillside and where he, you know, becomes a Bolton. Once again, Ramsey, not my favorite character, but 
there's something about the wind whipping on that hillside and, and Roos talking about how far the North extends. They give such a good sense of place, um, in, in this season. Uh, what did you think of all that Bolton stuff? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think of the North as, is essentially Scotland, right? Um, or, or, or some version of like, uh, yeah, getting a sense of the vastness of it, the sort of almost like, I don't know, spiritual elemental importance of it. You know, I, I, I think that helps. And I think you're right also that this is a total book plotline uh, and something that the show in later seasons would not really f- see that they had time to do, which I think is a good, it's emblematic of something that, you know, is lost in that translation, which is that part of the joy of reading those books is just all the detail, that, m- most of which is sort of not actually integral to the story, but just like f- fleshes out the world over and over and over again, giving us a deeper understanding of this thing that George R. R. Martin has created. Um, so for that reason, yeah, I appreciate it. I also think that, yeah, Alfie Allen, wh- where you watch the un, you know, he, he's actually putting on a pretty good front at first, you know, saying like, my father bent, you know, bent the knee, whatever, like everything's gonna be fine. And then when the minute he's challenged, he, all the reek comes pouring back out. And it's just like a really well modulated performance. Yeah. Alfie is like, seriously, one of my series MVPs. It's interesting. I, I keep returning to this. Um, the conversation that we did with, with Brian Cogman for Kiss by Fire when he talked about, Theon, Sansa, and Jamie as sort of like his three favorites because they have these like messy, complicated, it's not like a clean redemption arc or anything for that. It's like it's two steps forward, one steps back for all three of them um, as they go forward. And I... I just am thinking about that a lot as I watch this and, and what unifies those three and why Theon and Jamie were always favorites for me. Um, and Sansa wasn't. And if that is some sort of internalized misogyny, which it might be. Um, yeah. all right. One last thing about yeah. this section is didn't someone on the hills date some guy named Moat Kalen? I just <laughs> 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 like a, the floppy slouchy hat, you know, oh, I don't know. It just <laughs> sounds like a, sounds like, you know, one of them would have, would have, would have dated a Moat Kalen. Moat Kalen definitely goes to Coachella. And that's for sure. Audrina's um. <laughs> boyfriend for a two episodes or something. Um, yeah. And then we've got, we've got the big showpiece of the episode, which is, uh, Oberyn Martell's death. Um, there's a fun old article on VF.com. This is, once again, this is fun to talk about season, season four, cause this is like when you and I started at Vanity Fair. Um, and I remember, uh, this great piece that someone, not me, did with the visual effects supervisors about this episode and about how they constructed Oberyn's head uh that pops <laughs> and it's really gross <laughs> and great so you can google like Oberyn head you know vanity fair or something like that and get get the lowdown on it um but yeah this is just like an incredible incredible book moment um and maybe maybe the last time that book readers or show watchers would be fooled because by the time like Jon snow gets stabbed spoiler alert in season five nobody's getting fooled anymore by like certain things. You know what I mean? Like everyone's just like very wary. And this is the last time I think you credulously watch, um, you know, someone where you're like, well, I know how this story goes. This is the hero. And this is where he gets vengeance for his sister. And I get it. Yep. Yep. Oh, he's winning. Great. Yep. That's what I, that, that's exactly what I wanted. And then, you know, George just like really cruelly pulls the rug out there. Um, yeah. It's the last sort of like kill your darlings moment mm-hmm. where like, um, a lot of the other deaths on the show, the ones that last anyway, um, 
from here on out are sort of like deaths of consequence and like causality where it's like, okay, they're finally getting revenge for this. Like, like, like little finger dot, you know, like it, there's a kind of a settling of accounts because the show is sort of, you know, bringing itself to a close. But this feels like the last significant one where it's like, oh, no, no, we're still going to kill people you like kind of indiscriminately. And there's not going to be necessarily a ton of lead up to it. Like, obviously, this duel has been building, but narrative, you know, from traditional sort of American narrative positions, like, like you said, like this, this is supposed to end a certain way. And that's what the audience absolutely expects. And then it that it doesn't, but it kind of does, because he does, in essence, kill the mountain because he poisons him yeah so it's kind of this pyrrhic victory where both sides lose in a way um i just think that that the kind of complexity and surprise of this death it's really kind of the last one that the show does yeah i think that's right i mean it, we'll see what happens in the final season we don't you know um but i think that that's true and and something that i've been critical of uh the show since it's gone off books you know, the Jon Snow coming back, like, that's something George is gonna do, I'm a thousand percent sure anyway, so, like, you can't really lay that at the show, but the show has gotten criticism, I think, in the years that's been off books, which is, like, season five onwards, um, for being kind of toothless, for not being brave enough to, like, murder people, um, in, like, big battles and stuff like that. So there have been deaths, like, sure, but you have stuff like the Battle of the Bastards or Spoils of War, which are these, like, big conflicts where, like, Okay, Rickon dies, but like, uh, you know, who, you know, sort and Rick, of thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, and Rickon dying also feels cheap it, it, because it feels like the show trying to do some, you know, one of the earlier surprising deaths. But it, like you said, like who, like he, he hasn't, he hasn't earned a position of prominence, at least in the books. There are all these kind of tantalizing little whispers about like someone saw one of the Stark kids somewhere in some far flung town, you know? So we kind of keep getting these little like pings from Rickon. And so he hasn't died in the books, but like right. were he to, it would have actually had some weight, but the show kind of trying to recreate the, the, those weighty deaths, the way that they're so effective in the book, it, the books, it just, it can't quite get there. It can't quite get there. And it just doesn't like, it doesn't seem to have the time to, well, that's, yeah, that's the issue. Yeah. Um, like, oh, uh, you know, Oberyn only had a season, but like, you know, you spend all season with this guy. You love this guy. <laughs> like you love him and you want him to stick around, but like the, the fact that he dies just makes you love him even more and love that scant time that you get to spend with him. So. And the kind of perversity of the way he dies, yeah. the way that, um, uh, Indira Varma is shrieking and shrieking, the way he's shrieking, that to, to juxtapose this sort of sleek, fast moving, sexy, sort of Lothario, cool cat always has the right thing to say with then just the, like the, like the, this howling awful death. Yeah. It's, it's just such an interesting kind of immolation of, of like this cool character. Um, and a reminder of everyone's sort of, you know, flailing mortality. Yeah. And just from a technical point of view, like the fight looks amazing, you know, so, um, half for Bjornison, I think is his name. I think I did not butcher that, but that's the actor that they recast this season as the mountain. There have been three guys who played the mountain, but the, the, the guy who was cast this season, who's like an, um, Icelandic strongman, um, is the one who's stayed in that role. He's a fan, right? <laughs> yes. He eats, he eats a crow for dinner, but, um, the, the other guys they had were like, I don't know, weirdly kind of tall. I don't know, just like didn't quite get that like 
terrifyingly scary brute hugeness. The mountain. Like, this is a mountain of a man. Um, and then you've got, um, Tommy Dunn, who's the weapons master, was talking to us about this, um, on our last episode about the episode Two Swords, how they, like, they got a wushu master basically to come in and do some of the, like, Oberon moves, um, where he's just twirling with that spear and it's just so incredible looking. Um, so, you know, so you just have that like nimble, um, fighting and it's just like, you know, the, the fighting is so good on the show and has only gotten better as it's gone on. Like we can, we can criticize how some things maybe aren't as good as the show goes on, but like some of these technical stuffs, like the art design, like the fighting choreography has just gotten better and better and better. And I think this is just a truly standout um, example of it. Yeah. The other, the other things I want to call out um, in this final sequence, uh, reaction faces from Lena Headey and Charles dance great like mm, and he looks mm-hmm. like she's sucking on lemons like this entire thing when she even when she's like she thinks she's losing and then even when she thinks she wins it's like this very sour smile and then also um be, you know especially because they do that work before the duel with the Tyrion and jamie scene in the cell um you know dinglish's face at the end of this where you're like you have to sit with that moment where like the episode ends and it's not like not only is ober and dead but as far as we know uh Tyrion is gonna die as well as a result and you know the camera sits on him and that's that's a tremendous way to end the episode you know what it kind of reminded me of not exactly the 2016 election but like sort of maybe like a few months after like post inauguration when they just like kept doing bad shit and it was just this like but wait no like wait i'm real we're really beat you know defeated here aren't we yeah. <laughs> like, like there is like the absence of hope and i just think that that you know to to have this big flashy fighter with this righteous cause and you're like okay like here we go you know fighting the system and then the system is like bonk <laughs> like no yeah. uh it's it's pretty despairing yeah and and the glee with which tywin sentences his own son to death is is chilling yep yeah it's all and sets the stage for what's about to happen. To him. Yep. What's coming for him? What's coming for Jamie? Like all of Jamie's, uh, stuff that's happening here in terms of him deciding to defy his, his father and his sister for his brother. It's all, it's all messy and complicated, which is exactly how we like our thrones. The last thing I'm going to talk about before we, um, go to our interview and this is like a perfect setup for it is, is, the location of this, like right on the water, it's a, ama- it's an amazing and just like the way that it's all set up. Like, you know, you could have had this kind of anywhere, but the, the location of it just adds because it's so beautiful and idyllic and like Mediterranean looking. And it goes with like Oberon's cool catness, as you mentioned. And the fact that, that this horrible, disgusting, violent thing happens in this beautiful locale, uh, is a big, it's a big, uh, part of why it lands the way it does. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, you know, you, you really understand why in Croatia there's a big Game of Thrones tourism market because it's just gorgeous. Exactly. All right. So, um, that is it for this, this installment. Uh, we are going to go talk to Deb Riley in a moment. So hang on for that. And next time we're going to be talking about the season four finale, the children, um, which has a lot of really good stuff in it. This is our, this is our tour of, of season four. We here at Still Watching have a very special deal for our listeners that we're really excited to tell you about. 
If you are not already a subscriber to Vanity Fair, either to the print or the digital side, we just want to let you know we have a special 50% off offer running through April that's tied to Game of Thrones. So if you go to VanityFair.com slash Thrones, enter the promo code Thrones, you get 50% off. Okay, the standard deal is actually a really good deal. It's a whole year for $15 for both the print magazine and the digital option, or you can get one year just digital if you don't want any print magazines coming to your house. Plus, you get this incredible tote bag. But with our promo, you get all of that for $7.50. $7.50 for an entire year. Less than 10 bucks for an entire year of Vanity Fair access. Plus the tote bag. I can't even get, I can't get over how good the tote bag is. So anyway, all of that happens. If you're deciding between whether or not to get like digital or print and digital bundled together, I just will let you know that we've had some incredible photographs in our magazine recently. So you might want to consider getting the print delivered to you because I don't know if you saw our sumptuous, beautiful Hollywood cover that had incredible photographs. Um, some of your favorites on there, Timothy Chalamet, Chadwick Boseman, et cetera, et cetera. Or... If you saw our style issue, which features the King in the North himself, Richard Madden, I mean, these photos, you're going to want them on your wall. I, 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 I do. So anyway, so anyway, go to VanityFair.com slash Thrones, enter promo code Thrones, $7.50 whole year, all of our Game of Thrones content, bring down the paywall, crash into Vanity Fair, enjoy what we have to say about Game of Thrones. Do it. Do it. The Oscars are almost upon us, which means now is the time to start catching up on all of the buzz from this year's award season. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, I mean, that's how you know you really love and trust and respect someone is that we can absolutely fight. Paul Giamatti. It's like, holy <laughs> He just nailed the <laughs> out of that. Sorry. And America Ferreira. It's like yeah. people standing around for hours just waiting to, like, be a part of this cultural moment. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer-affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. 
Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Game of Thrones production designer, Deb Riley. Can you start off? First of all, thank you so much for joining us. Secondly, can you start off by telling anyone who doesn't know what exactly it is a production designer does? Um, You're welcome. Um, Yes, so production designer on any show is responsible for the sets and the props. So that means that we create the environment in which the show is set. And um, we also are responsible for the props that the actors hold in their hands. We're responsible for uh, the locations that are chosen and then that, then how they are adapted to suit the scene. The production designer is the head of the art department. And that means all of the art directors, set decorators, um, set designers, art, um, assistant art directors, carpenters, blasters, painters, uh, they all ultimately answer to the production designer. So um, it's being responsible for a very large team of people. Yeah, it's a huge team of people. Um, and you joined the show in season four, is that correct? Yes, which was 2013, which seems like a long time ago now. I was talking to Fabian Wagner, who uh, was the director of photography, the DP on a number of big Game of Thrones episodes, like Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, The Winds of Winter. And he mentioned some of the challenges of trying to light a world that is supposed to be, you know, quasi-medieval, that is lit by either natural light or firelight, but you don't have, like, <laughs> overhead light to make sure your room is bright. And um, I was wondering, with something like that, he mentioned specifically there's a this long house in a hard home where parts of the roof uh, are missing, so you get these integral shafts of light coming in to, to light your actors. Yeah. Um, what is the push and pull between trying to build a set that looks beautiful to you, the art department, and is also practical uh, in terms of making sure actual light can get in on your actors? We work very, very closely with the DPs and the directors. Um, oftentimes they come in slightly later than the art department, so we've, al- we've already done a certain amount of groundwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they come in, we might have, uh, you know, white card models built, or we'll certainly have drawings. And they can then comment on them, or sometimes a set is half built, which will allow them to really make a very accurate assessment of the set and decide uh, what changes need to be made, if any, regarding light. And it's something that, as Fab said, in the medieval world is really challenging because um, whilst the medieval world was clearly very dark, it it doesn't work well when you're you're shooting it. (laughs) So, you know, how can you possibly justify having a room full of a thousand candles in order to to make it work on film? But on the other hand, uh, we also want to make it look slightly accurate to the period. So it, it was a very tricky line that the DPs had had to sort of run all the time. And uh, the art department helped wherever we could. But ultimately, all of us were, were bound to a particular look of the show and trying to make it feel as real and as authentic as we could. What's one of the trickier um, locations or, or sets that you can think of trying to put together? Do you know, I think for me, um, in season four, when I was brand new to the show and brand new in terms of a personality working in amongst that mice machine, um, working out the marine audience chamber uh, was something that was particularly tricky mm, yeah. because that was supposed to be an audience chamber inside the Great Pyramid 
And so how do you make a space look like it's inside this enormous pyramid? And obviously, if it's inside the pyramid, it wouldn't have any direct light or maybe it's at the side of the pyramid, in which case the light would only enter you know, from one side and pyramids would have really deep walls. So that makes it very, very difficult for the DPs to actually shoot any light through those very deep reveals. And, and that was tricky. And that was something that... Uh, in order to make the space feel heavy and monolithic and, and like it was inside a pyramid yeah. and all that sort of stuff, it directly contradicted everything that the cinematographers were trying to do, you know, because <laughs> they need to light this space. Yeah. So it's like, well, where, where do we get the light from? You know, what are we going to do? Where do we get the light from? And that was um, a very big learning curve for me. So, yeah, but it, I mean, it looked fantastic and I'm really proud of that set. That's, that's, that's probably my favourite from all my years, but... Um, yeah, from a DP's point of view, it was <laughs> incredibly challenging. And then from my point of view, it was incredibly challenging to satisfy them. So, <laughs> well, it's, uh, and the other thing you've got to remember too is in a season, there might be as many as five of them, five different DPs. So they all have their own way of shooting it. They've all got different scenes in there, obviously. And, uh, yeah, so we all have to come to come some kind of consensus as to how we're all going to work in these new spaces. You, maybe you just already answered this. Maybe it is Marine, but I, I've always wondered about, um, craftspeople like you or like Michelle who does the costumes and everything is if you have yeah. a specific region that you look at the script and you go oh yay I get to do more Dorn I love the Dornish stuff or oh dear god no another Dothraki encampment <laughs> I don't want to do any sand like is there a is there a favorite and a least favorite region for you to design? Um, absolutely the least favorite would be any whenever the art department saw the word camp written <laughs> in the set that that elicited a collective groan. You know, it was like, oh, God, here we go again. Because it meant that we were you know, going to be working outdoors oftentimes, particularly when we were shooting in Northern Ireland. The weather could be quite severe out there. Yeah. So we'd be working in the rain and the cold and everything else. And, you know, and, and dealing with the wind, too. Wind is a big deal out there. And then often there was fake snow. And it, it, it was just very, very time-consuming. And um, for the amount of work that went into it, it, it wasn't like it looked spectacular on screen. Right. It never seemed to give us you know, at the payback that we needed. So, yeah, certainly camps of any description were the least favourite. Um, I really loved working in Bravos, actually. Bravos mm, was a good song. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and Dragonstone was too. I, I really enjoyed Dragonstone for other reasons, but um, Bravos was fun. Like we, I think, as an art department, we all actually enjoyed Bravos. And I will never forget seeing Michelle's costumes walk on to Bravos for the first time. So interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I know I've seen Michelle Clapton talk about sort of some of the, I don't know, mood boards she would put together for a region or something like that. Do you guys work in concert then to make sure that what she has in mind for the dress and what you have in mind for um, the art department uh, go together? Yeah, I wish we had have done more of it. I mean, the reality was we just didn't have time. You know, she was at, at one end of, um, you know, the the area that we were all working right. and I was at the extreme other. Right. And we we rarely saw each other. But when we did um, make the effort, you know, certainly at the start of establishing a new world, we would always meet and just say, what colours are you thinking? What textures are you thinking? What You know, what's this place going to look like? She would be very interested to know what sort of architecture I was referencing and uh, we just needed to make sure that our color palette was cohesive. Yeah. Um, and then, and then we'd see each other on the the day that the sets were established. You know, <laughs> we'd be like, oh hi, oh that's amazing, such a legend and such a wonderful, wonderful woman. I'm always fascinated to hear um, 
people in art departments talk about, I don't know, certain rules they have for themselves. Like I will always do this. I will never do this or something like that. Do you have, um, things that, um, maybe region specific, like, oh, I would never use a this in Dorn, or we always make sure we have this elsewhere, um, that maybe viewers wouldn't have paid attention to, but, but you have in your head. We actually had a, quite a, a thick Bible of information actually about every one of our worlds that was created, you know, what was specific to Dawn that you would never see in King's Landing and, uh, what was in King's Landing you would never, ever have seen, um, at Dragonstone, for instance. And, those were things like color palette, um, but also, um, particularly when I first joined the show, they were very, very um, conscious of the fact that they had to teach me all of those regional specific um, notions that they had. That even in a mid shot, you know, where you're only seeing, you know, from the actor's wa- actor's waist up, that you would immediately know where they are, and so what sort of things can indicate that. So it's color, and it's like the texture, it's the size of the brickwork, so. King's Landing had a particular size brickwork that you didn't see at Castle Black, for instance. Um, and the colours were completely different. And even in King's Landing, they always wanted to make sure that um, you, you felt that, and, and Michelle thought about this too, in terms of the colours that she used and the fabrics that she used, that the people who lived in these regions would have access to what was on the set and would have access to what they wear. So um, you would never see... Uh, a fruit basket, you know, up at Castle Black, <laughs> right. because they would never have had access to it. And then, as winter was coming in King's Landing, we we cut all of that out as well, um, because you would they they just wouldn't have had those sort of resources anymore. So there were a lot of internal rules for us, which, while they were very important to us, if an audience member ever picks up on them, it it doesn't matter. Hopefully, it just makes the world feel more cohesive. Um, for the audience and and gives a, a certain depth and realism that that we were striving for. It, you mentioned sort of winter encroaching on King's Landing as as winter takes over this whole continent as the series goes on. What are some of the challenges that presents to you and your team? It's a hideous hideous thing of dealing with fake snow, <laughs> and uh, it's incredibly expensive, uh. and incredibly fragile, and. Uh, because of the, the fake snow that we would use is, is all like tiny paper particles. Mm. And we were working in a region that um, rained a lot. So you, the paper, if it was the snow, if it was put down too early, would just turn to paper mache and then have to all be scraped back and reapplied. So one of the biggest challenges that we had was working with the fake snow because we could only put it down at the last minute because mm. it would be wasting the snow to put it down any earlier. But at the same time, uh, obviously it had to look right. So we, we really only ever had one opportunity to do that and that was right before they shot. And then once they started shooting on it, um, the, the snow would be destroyed almost immediately because actors, you know, in the scene would walk on it and then crew would walk across the snow again. So we were constantly reapplying, constantly scraping it back, constantly reapplying again. And the special effects department who were um, ultimately responsible for the snow. So you had the most patient group of guys, you know. So you're seeing something like uh, Stannis' encampment, right? Which is just yeah. like camp, camp, tents, which you already are groaning at, and then just covered in snow. And you're like, dear God, why? Why this? <laughs> Coming from Australia, I mean, I've never touched fake snow in my life. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't know how to work with it at all. Yeah. So it was one of the fastest learning curves that I, I had to go through. It was just 
how to understand what the snow guys needed of me and, and what they needed to do their work. So there's such a huge amount of infrastructure that goes with the snow. I could bore you for days with it. <laughs> but um, that was, yeah, that was one of the hardest parts about the whole thing. And, you know, the more the more winter we had, the more we had to deal with it. <laughs> One of the, um, let, let's talk about sunnier locations, which is if we, if we talk about specifically this episode, season four, episode eight, the mountain, the viper, um, my, you know, maybe you have your own favorite location. Let's start with my favorite location and, and design, which is, um, the fighting arena itself where Oberon and the mountain fight, um, mm-hmm. which is right on the water there in, I think, I believe it's Croatia. And, um, it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful, like, elegant backdrop for this really brutal thing to have happened. Can you take me through sort of the decisions that went into where and how of this particular setup? This was just the most um, extraordinary location that we found. Uh, It's just outside the city walls of Dubrovnik, actually. And we knew we were looking for an amphitheatre, preferably some sort of amphitheatre. But we really, when we go out on these location scouts, um, you've got to go out with a bit of an open mind because if you lock yourself in too early, you might be discarding good ideas that are right in front of you that, that that you're refusing to see. So we all go out with an open mind and think, okay, well, what what is there? What can we do? Um, and we were taken to a, a place called the Hotel Belvedere. And it was built in 1986. And then it was abandoned in 1991 due to the civil war there in Croatia. So what we found when we arrived at the Hotel Belvedere was this completely abandoned site that was absolutely covered in graffiti, covered in graffiti. And the amphitheatre itself had metal railings everywhere. So it looked shocking. But as you say, the location was unbelievable. So it became something that was very, very difficult to ignore. But in order to turn it into King's Landing, it was going to take an awful lot of work. Yeah. So um, the, the plastering crew um, set to work, the painters, and the Greensman, the Greensman did a lot of work there, like introducing the King's Landing style trees into the la- that location to help cover other buildings and things in the distance that we didn't want to see. And ultimately, it was converted into a really King's Landing location, I think, that was very, very convincing. And it had a beautifully painted sigil um, in the centre of the arena, which was the Lannister Baratheon sigil, which was painted to look like it was mosaic. And that is one of my favourite things from the entire time I was there. It was one of the most remarkable pieces of scenic art I've ever seen. And we had a rainstorm, a very severe rainstorm, um, just before, I think it was the night before we shot that scene. So we had sand and everything just gush over the whole set. So it knocked this um, this beautifully painted mosaic oh, no. uh, completely back. So it sort of had this layer of sand all over it that we couldn't, really remove and um, you can't see it as well as I would have loved Um, but it it, it was a truly beautiful piece of artistry and when the um, when Oberon's head is crushed Mm. you can just see the painted mosaic behind him but obviously you're not focused on the mosaic you're focused on him and what's happening oh yeah no and and you say that like we don't notice maybe we're paying too much attention to poor uh pedro's head being squashed but i think that yeah. <laughs> I, I think that balance of the elegance and the beauty and the ornateness of the location really does underscore 
just the whole thing. It's just, ugh, it's an incredible, incredible, like whole piece together. Um, you mentioned, yeah. you mentioned location scouting and you, and you had mentioned it earlier. The time that I've heard, uh, Dave and Dan, uh, sing your praise the highest is the Dragonstone location that kicks off, um, season seven. Um, I've heard them call you out by name several times on that. How much are you actively involved in location scouting? Like, is it something you spearhead? Is it something someone goes and says, Hey, Deb, you got to see this. Please come check this out sort of thing. I was very, very lucky. And, um, this is like one of the absolute perks of the job. At the start of every season, um, two of the producers, Bernie Caulfield, Chris Newman, um, and actually three of us, Duncan Muggock, uh, who became our line producer, and myself would head out and just see what we could see. And it, we started in Croatia, and then in later seasons we were in Spain. And it was just extraordinary. I mean, I must have been in and out of every castle in Spain, you can imagine. And we would spend eight or ten days on the road and we had our Spanish location scouts with us, and, and off we went. We were this really weird sort of look, looking, traveling family. And um, and it was it was hilarious at times because they didn't want anybody to know that we were Game of Thrones, so we weren't allowed to have, you know, any of our jackets with any of the, you know, GOT stuff <laughs> on it. We weren't allowed to have any paper. We weren't allowed to do this. We weren't allowed to do that. And we weren't allowed to look like we might be a film crew, so they, you know, we used to, one year they jammed us into a tiny little van <laughs> so that, um, you know, nobody would possibly guess we were who we were. And Duncan and I were sort of sitting there in the back of the van with like luggage coming up over our head. <laughs> and then we would clamber out at every location and then, you know, photograph it, clamber back in and talk about it. And then at the end of the day, we'd sit down and say, well, what did you think of this? What did you think of that? And then, you know, at breakfast the next day, you know, having slept on it, you know, is there anywhere we need to go back to while we're still in this region? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, what a fortunate thing to be able to do. So I feel like I've seen every square centimetre of the coast of Croatia and uh, <laughs> yeah, and virtually everything there is to see in Spain. And I know that I know every square inch of Northern Ireland. And what, I mean, just what a wonderful thing to be able to do. I mean, how great. But at, the, but at a certain point, it starts getting quite stressful because you have a, a laundry list of things you're trying to find. And if you're getting to sort of the third or fourth day and you're not, finding what you thought you were going to find, then uh, it it starts getting a bit worrying. And, you know, the, the guys who are showing you around start getting stressed and we start getting stressed about it. It's like, well, what are our alternatives? You know, could that other location that we didn't really like, like maybe, do you think? No, probably not. Okay, let's keep looking. You know, what do you think this is going to be? So it can be quite tough, but most of the time we, we just had an absolute ball. And <laughs> the, the last... The last year that we did it, we were like, oh, we're really going to miss this next year. And it was a very weird traveling troupe, you know, it was very odd. But um, we just, I, and I have like the most enormous collections of photographs of these guys in my photos. Like, sort of, like, they look like weird holiday photos. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, yeah, and it's like these guys who are never, like obviously we're not standing and taking photographs of ourselves, we're taking photographs of the location. But ultimately we all end up in each other's photos and it's... Um, it's really sort of a bizarre collection of, of these incredibly detailed um, recollections of these places. And Is there one where you were just like, uh, love at first sight, Eureka? Looking back on it, now that I have my rose-colored glasses on it, it feels like it was Dragonstone. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, um, filming in the Basque country in Spain is not an easy thing. And um, 
where we shot was called Zemaya Beach, where Danny makes the yeah. the landing, and uh, that's a that's a very beautiful place where locals go, and um, and the the people of that region, um, obviously, and so they should be, are very very protective of it. So we needed to be very careful in the way that we worked with them. And at various points, it was clear that they really didn't want us there. So um, we were we just had to be hypersensitive about the work that we were doing and how, what sort of an impact we were making on their lives by being there. Yeah. So um, that sort of thing we, we always had to be mindful of. But those extraordinary steps that lead um, up to the Castle of Dragonstone, um, which are also not too far from that beach, actually, which in real life lead up to a little a little church, but for us was replaced replaced by the visual effects castle. Um, you know, 200 and something stairs, uh, you know, crossing the water there. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I remember all of us just looking at the extraordinary view. I mean, we just couldn't help it. And this amazing strata just, you know, soaring out of the water. Um, we were all just looking at each other. Thinking, like, how is it that we didn't even know about this place? Like, well, this is unbelievable. You know, why didn't the guy tell us that we were about to see one of the most staggeringly beautiful locations we've ever been to? Like, why didn't somebody say? And we, we but access again wasn't easy. You know, it's not like it's, um, it's not like there's a main road that runs straight past it or anything. But that's where the producers of Game of Thrones need a huge amount of credit because um, they would always, always make the decision um, based on the quality of what we could get on screen rather than the convenience of shooting it. I know, I, I read the stats. I know that, that there are places where the tourism has boomed because you guys have, have chosen to shoot a scene or scenes there. Um, I know that there are whole tours you can take in Croatia. You know, do you start getting then pitches from places around in Europe saying like, please choose our castle. We want that, that Game of Thrones tourism bump or something like that. Well, yeah, I have a friend who works in Sweden. Um, I worked there many, many years ago and she kept on hearing rumors that Game of Thrones were coming to Sweden. And, uh, yeah. And I mean, it, there was obviously excitement in her emails because she wanted Game of Thrones to come to Sweden. She works on the film board there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, you would want Game of Thrones to, to come to, to boost your tourism industry if, if that's, if that's what you're wanting. Um, in the case of, uh, Dubrovnik, it's, it's at a saturation point. Right. There's so many tourists now. Yeah. Um, I feel a little bit guilty about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, we were also able to do extraordinary things when we were shooting in Spain. We, there was a, it must have been um, the end of season seven. There was that amazing council there in the um, when Danny lands her dragon, and they um, they show Cersei the white for the first time. Oh, in the dragon pit. Yeah, yeah. In the dragon pit. Yeah. That's the name of it. And um, <laughs> that's yeah, the, and that's that, the Italic, Italica. Is that right? Is that where that Italica, is? Italica. Yeah. yeah. And that was built in seventy four A.D. Yeah. And um, it it just. It's not a tourist attraction, or it wasn't at the time. I mean, yes, it was open to tourists, but nobody knew about it. And so this place was in danger of, um, you know, just not getting the kind of upkeep that it needed because they couldn't afford it. So I'm hoping that through the exposure, they've been able to, you know, help save it. Um, so there are things like that where you think, actually, this is going to shine a really positive light on this, so this is great. And 
just um, the Ita- yeah, yeah. It's fantastic when you think of what it's done to Northern Ireland and to Belfast. It's had a wonderful impact. It, the Italica is such a good and interesting example because I've seen before and after photos of that location where before, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful in, in its, sort of obvious ancient structural bones, but there's so much you added to that. Um, can you talk about, you know, building out, seeing the potential in something like the Italica and knowing what you can do in terms of visual effects or, or production design in order to build it out? Yeah, and I think, again, I mean, for a scene like that, it was really important that it have a certain amount of weight to it um, that we needed insofar as uh, it was a very important, Scene. It was a very, it was something that was actually um, the the result of that scene was going to change the course of the rest of the show. You know, convincing Cersei that there was an issue um, is obviously a very important story point. And I was really intrigued by Metallica, not only because it was absolutely authentic, but because you know Danny could arrive from above on the dragon. It would, uh, to me, the idea of having the Hound carry. Um, the white up from below and to have sort of Cersei arrive at ground level. So you could have all of these different levels working at once. But when you're working inside somewhere that is um, of enormous architectural and historical importance, you've got to work with the right um, conservationists to make sure that we're obviously not damaging the site in any way. So um, that's where it becomes uh, a very sort of sensitive thing. And, you, you know, as an art department, we have to be very careful the way that we work and then the shooting crew have to respect the site in the same way. But to be able to go to work in a place like that and when we were shooting in um, the gardens in Seville and the Alcazar, I mean, who gets to be able to do that? You get to walk through those gardens by yourself in the morning. Yeah, it's gorgeous. All that, all that tile work. That was the, um, the water gardens in Doran was that, the Alcazar, right? In Spain. Correct. Yeah. And you know, it's just stuff like that where, um, you just can't take that for granted because it's such a special experience. And I think it's, I think you can see it on screen and it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a really, really beautiful experience. What, um, I, I've, I've, I've read some interviews with, uh, with you where you've mentioned having very, very, some very, very detailed, um, instruction from Dan and David of what they want for something. And then I know sometimes uh, you are given much more free reign. Can you recall um, something that Dan and David were especially uh, specific about, maybe not Dragonstone because we've talked about it already a bit, and then something where you got to really go wild with whatever it is you wanted to do? Something like um, the House of Black and White, David and Dan uh, had very strong ideas in their head of how it would work. And there were very detailed descriptions. It was a seemingly endless chamber and that when Arya walks into the Hall of Faces. So they, they would describe it in those terms. It's an, an endless chamber full of, full of the faces of the dead. And it's not like a library. It's not like an art gallery, but it's where all of these faces are stored. Don't let yourself be limited by the height of a ladder. Like that's not the point, you know. Um, and so, Working with the concept artists, and we had many concept artists on the show who would always create a beautiful illustration of what a set or a scene was going to look like. We that was one that took quite a long time to get um, to get the final approval on because it was 
conceptually it was such a tricky thing. Okay, so it's an endless chamber. And how did they get those spaces up there? And, and uh, what? You know, <laughs> how many of them are there? And how are we going to show? Like, and how are the faces displayed? Like, what do you mean? Like, how do you how do you hang a skin face? And it's through all of those discussions with um, David and Dan that you really begin to understand what's important to them. Um, the details of how the skin was hung in those little alcoves wasn't important. We just had to s- display the faces as cleanly as we could. Um, and as I say, the, the thoughts of how the faces were put up there in the first place was of no relevance to them whatsoever. It, it was more, um, more important to them to show the vastness of the space, to show how many people um, had given their lives at um, the House of Black and White and uh, just how many of these skins that they had. You know, it, it that was the important thing for them, that it felt old. It was that the House of Black and White had to be, it was the headquarters of the faceless men and the exterior of the building had to give away absolutely nothing of what was contained on the interior. Mm. So from a DP's point of view, there were no windows. Right. There was nothing at all to indicate the time of day. And it was really challenging. And uh, David and Dan were very, very specific about what they needed out of it. And no matter how many times one of the DPs begged for a window, it, it was never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and so stuff like that is is really is really great, you know. And you, you and what we did was we would just always pound it out and and work it out between ourselves exactly what we were building and and how much of it, and then how that interfaced with visual effects and. Um, it was really fascinating, and uh, yeah, so something like that. David and Dan had uh, a lot of um, a, a lot of impact, and a lot of um, like their opinions were very strong about something like, um, say, the Danny's penthouse um, again in Marine. Um, yeah, I mean that was something that uh, they sort of let me run with um, for a long time, and then they saw that I had an original. De- uh, in the original design, but something that we'd never spoken about, there was sort of a water feature in there and they didn't notice it until it was built. And then they were like, what's that? It's <laughs> <laughs> a water feature. And uh, yeah, and then it's like, you know what, Deb, it looks like a hotel lobby. Oh. Okay, then we'll get rid of the water feature. You know, oh. so sometimes they let me run and then it's like, well, we like all that, but we don't like that. So it's like, okay, great. Well, the water feature goes. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's always give and take. And um, ultimately, it's their story. It's they're the guys who are who are telling the, the the whole story. They had the whole story in their heads the entire time. So all of us really respected that and respected their opinions. And Is there I actually a- think that they they made the right call. You know, the water feature was a distraction. <laughs> it Is was it- noisy anyway, so <laughs> it, it needed to go. Is there anything like the water feature that they initially said said no, Deb, and then you push back and then they go, oh, wait, you were right, Deb? They're, they're such nice guys. I could always tell if they liked something because they would reply to a concept immediately with, yeah, great, cool. Um, if they didn't like something, it would take them a couple of days to write that to write back just because they wanted to it felt to me like they wanted to compose a nice email right craft you know, it nicely exactly what we were thinking you know <laughs> right, yeah. and I said you know you don't have to worry you're not going to offend me don't worry like it's just better that I know and you know that there's just sort of great like that but um I remember and I maybe I remember it because it was season four and I was so new that um the crucifixion of um the masters in marine mm, yeah you know they were all nailed to those sort of crosses and uh, but when Danny's originally on her journey to Marine, she encounters a child, 
and um, she's sort of pointing the way, you know, on one of those crosses. And um, I just couldn't bear the thought of like the thought of the crucifixion of a child. So we we drew it as though she'd been strung up. So she'd been sort of strung there rather than nailed there. And um, and I remember them saying, "It's not what we had in mind, but it's better." Oh, so nice. we, we went with that. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's every now and then I I would have an opinion, and sometimes it was like, "No, fine," and then. And then you keep going. I mean, the wonderful thing is you're just so busy. It's like, it's just great to have an answer. It doesn't matter whether it's the <laughs> one that you were hoping for or not. It's like, okay, cool. We're going to forget that and move on with this. Yeah, and, on um, to the next thing. <laughs> There's so much fire and freezing in this show. So that means like a lot of beautiful things get destroyed on this show. What is it like watching something that you've built then get burnt or whatever it is? Is there some sort of joy you get in like burning something beautiful down or do you get just upset to see something beautiful go? You know, it's incredibly satisfying. <laughs> um, you wouldn't... Yeah, that no, was great. Um, I, the one example that I can think of is, um, I think it was season... Maybe it was season five again with um, uh, with the Temple of Doshkaline when um, Danny's... Danny's uh, in um, based Dothrak there. Oh, six, I think. And she yeah. the, she turns the tables on the Carls and then and then burns yeah. the whole place down. Um, I unfortunately because they shot that in the middle of the night, I wasn't there when they when they shot it. And my and I had travelled back to Belfast. We shot that in Almeria in Spain, and I had had to travel back to Belfast earlier that day. And um, the next morning, my inbox was full of like this photographs of this temple like completely on fire like with like flames absolutely gushing out of it and then that just this completely withered frame that was left at the at the end of the scene so um yeah i'm not i'm not particularly i don't get that attached to um to sets i i think they're they're there for the purpose of the storytelling and and then they have to go the, the only one i was really upset about when they when they took it down was the marine audience chamber mm. mainly because that was my favorite from Your baby. when I was very new on the yeah. show. Yeah, and that, that meant a lot to me just because of the time that it, it happened. But um, you've you've just got to be able to, you know, just keep keep going. And, uh, yeah, I, I quite liked the beautiful destruction that, that we were able to explore in, you know, burning the temple down. It, like, it, it looked fantastic. Were you excited to see Vaistathrak go because it's kind of a camp? And you were like, oh, yeah, burn that camp down. Yeah, wanna... we can get rid of another camp. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's the thing. You know, it, it sort of manages to cleanse us in all sorts of ways. <laughs> it's like, great. You know, get her out of there. You know, when it all happens, when it all comes together, you know, just let it burn. And uh, it's a great feeling. We know that there's going to be so much war in this final season. Everyone has talked about it um, in every mm-hmm. interview. Um, I've also seen you say that you feel like what the art department, what the production design does in a battle sequence has been underestimated. Like you think just because they're outside and there aren't sets or something like that, that the production design had nothing to do with it. What are some of the things that, that we should pay attention to um, that your team had to work on in this final From season? From a set deck point of view. They go just crazy with dead bodies, and um, you know how do you, you know, because the costume department they don't they don't put costumes on props, like they just do the costumes on the moving people, which is more than enough work. And so then we have to go um, in the art department and the set decoration have to go and make all the armor for the dead bodies 
um, for the prop bodies that lie everywhere. So that's a, a job that is so thankless, I can't begin to say. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> yeah. it's, um, it's unbelievable, you know, because you're having to, and I know that the guys had a lot of um, the armour made in India or whatever, just in trying to get the volume that we needed um, as cheaply as possible. Because the other thing is too, obviously, nobody wants to spend money on that stuff. Um, but it's crucial. For me, also, I just want to make sure these scenes feel real because I think it's really important that people understand this is war, basically. This is what um, this is what we've been building to, and it's it's not to be taken lightly. You've got characters who are in danger, and we need to feel that that danger is real. So for me, um, it ended up being... It, like I was surprised how emotional I felt about the whole thing, actually, because I'd just spent months looking at all of the kind of reference material for, for battles and... Uh, yeah, and that's also what you want to show on screen. You want to feel that um, there's jeopardy and obviously people are being killed and it's it's not something to take lightly, not from an art department point of view, not from a stunt point of view, like it's, and certainly not from um, the director's point of view. Like We need to show the story as honestly as we can. That's a, and that yeah. meant a lot to me. That's a gruesome headspace to have to live in for so long. Yeah, I used to talk to Miguel Shepherdsnik about it actually, because I just said I think this is kind of messing me up. You know, it's re- it's really tough, and um, he was obviously, um, yeah, as it's, as many people have said, there were an awful lot of night shoots um, that they went through to do that, and um, it was tough to shoot as well. Like just the physical strain of shooting it was. Um, something that was very trying for them all so i'm lucky i get i get to um you know i'm not there all night long because i need to be at work early the next morning so i start them off and then leave them to it and i'm sure at you know three four in the morning it it gets tough to to keep on battling through all of that yeah the standby props guy you know whenever i'd see him he'd be he'd be covered from head to toe in you know fake snow and um that was absolutely sort of stuck to his face because of all the fake blood that, you know, he'd been dealing with. So, um, it's like tarred and feather. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was, um, it was difficult and, and it wasn't, it wasn't a barrel of laughs. Yeah. Um, it, it was tough, but, um, it was also in, in certain ways, um, yeah, quite as because we knew we were, we were finishing the story. Uh, it was such an important thing to, to round out with the sets and every time we finished on a set that we were never going to see again yeah um, it was it was kind of sad it's like well that's that's the last time we'll shoot there and so it was a it was just a season full of goodbyes like goodbyes people were finishing goodbye to finishing certain sets and um, yeah it was it was a very strange time and I'm not entirely sure of even learned how to articulate it properly yet. But, um, yeah, it was heavy stuff. And then my, my last question for you is something that I think, um, you know, there's been so little reported about season eight and that's by design because you guys want to keep as much mystery alive as possible. Um, but one thing that, that has gotten through in the official sort of entertainment weekly report is that there is like a new location that we've not seen before, um, in the final season. And I don't expect you to tell me what it is or really any details about it, except I am just curious if you can say anything at all about this new location or, or what you anticipate, you know, fans will get out of, um, a new, a new spot on the map. 
new spot on the map. Well, um, for me anyway, um, like anything, I guess, I'm hoping that the fans don't even notice. Um, the, the biggest, the biggest amount of work that we had to do in the season. And I'll be as cryptic as this as I, I hope you don't even see it. But you'll, you'll know it, you'll know it afterwards when, um, when I guess it's reported and, you know, there'll be, I, I don't know, I mean, when people are allowed to talk about it. But, um, I would hope that you, as, as an audience, you, you don't even see the work of the art department. And yet it, it occupied us from, the beginning of our prep period all the way through to the last day. As a matter of fact, um, yeah, like <laughs> they called rap and we were all on planes. It, it was the weirdest thing. Um, we didn't really get to sort of, there wasn't like there was any sort of tapering down, you know, where we all found ourselves having long lunches and that sort of thing. It didn't work like that at all. And even the night before we were rapping, we were changing the set around um, to shoot the next day a different way. So we were running and running like all the way to the end and then it was like okay it's a wrap and they were like okay great I, I guess this is goodbye then okay yep take care see you next time um and uh yeah so it was it was something that occupied us so completely um but if we've done our job properly you won't even know how about that i love it thank you <laughs> that's beautifully done thank you <laughs> And now I'm even more curious than ever, so I can't wait. Um, all right. Well, Deb Riley, thank you so much for, for all of this and all your great work for these many seasons on Game of Thrones. It's been a lot of fun, Joanna. So thank you very much. It's just, um, yeah, as I, as I get more and more removed from having worked on the show, uh, it's, it's really good fun to be able to think about and talk about because it's, um, it's, it's just such a, a great thing to remember. All right, thanks to Deb Riley. Once again, your homework before we talk uh, next time is to watch Season 4, Episode 10, The Children. Richard, until then, where can people find you? I'm just going to be practicing my spear spins, you know. I I think they could come in handy, so I'll just be by some beautiful ocean vista, just twirling and twirling and twirling. Uh, And I'll be on VF.com and Ryla's on Twitter. Joanna, where can people find you? Oh, yeah, I'll be on VF.com as well. I'll be on Twitter. I Joe wrote this, but mostly I'll be sitting in the garden smashing beetles. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? 
Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.